You're listening. You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to the Learning Futures. The Learning Futures. The Learning Futures podcast. Welcome to the Learning Futures Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sean Leahy, and with me today is another, or a return, I guess, I shouldn't say another, a return uh, special guest host, Roshna Mather. Roshna, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be on the show. That's the, that's the I think, the only acceptable answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so two quick things. One is, Roshna, since the last time you joined us, uh, on the podcast, you have a new job. Is that correct? I do. Last time I was on here, um, I was uh, part-time working with um, ASU Preparatory Academy. I was doing Con World School, helping to pilot that. I worked a little bit with our new, so these are all our new school learning models, kind of going along with the change in times um, and micro schools. And then I do have my own company called Stemology Club. But what shifted drastically is I have accepted a full-time leadership role at ASU Preparatory Academy, looking at our STEM strategy across all our different schooling models. And when I say that, we we teach um, online, hybrid, um, in person, and whatever the next the next greatest latest thing will be, we will be um, designing that. So um, I'm really excited to be part of ASU and ASU Prep in designing what our STEM. STEM strategy, semiconductor strategy, those those bits and pieces, AI, emerging tech, what that's going to look like in learning in the future. Yeah. And you're also finishing the last part of your doctoral degree. Is that Don't correct? remind me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I am on the home stretch. I have yeah. got one year. So I'm almost there and I'm really excited about that. Excellent. Yeah, well, I, you know, just hearing all that too makes me feel even more the privileged to have you with me today, seeing how, I don't know how you found this this block of time to squeeze into your schedule, but I much appreciate it. So I love um, it. This is so fun. This is a highlight for me. So thank well, you for having well, me. Yes, it, thanks. And you are always welcome. And I will notice today or note, note for today that we are actually recording out of a brand new space, um, a brand new podcast studio that we have built here in at ASU at the Tempe campus uh, in the Creativity Commons as part of the Zoom Innovation Lab space here. Um, so yeah, it's exciting. It's a, it's a fun day. This is the inaugural recording of this new studio. So we're super happy about that. And for anyone who is in our listeners that are part of the ASU community, um, in our show notes, I will also drop uh, the information that you need if you're like, hey, I'd like to try out your podcast studio. Well, we will make that available to you. Um, but joining us today, I want to get I want to get right to our guest, um, who's been so gracious with their time to join us today. Um, we're th- absolutely thrilled to have Ken Katinger here, who is a professor of human computer interaction and psychology at Carnegie Mellon University. His research goals include understanding human learning and creating educational technologies that increase student achievement. This research has contributed to new teaching principles and techniques for new educational software designs while producing basic cognitive science research results regarding the nature of student thinking and learning. Currently, he directs the Learn Lab, which was funded for over 10 years from the National Science Foundation. Learn Lab is now the scientific arm of CMU's Simon Initiative. Ken is also the co-founder of Carnegie Learning, which has brought cognitive tutor-based courses to millions of students. His research interests include cognitive modeling, intelligent tutoring systems, 
and learning science and technology. And Roshan and I are absolutely thrilled. We can't wait to get started. And so Ken, coming up, we've got a lot of questions for you, my friend. <laughs> Welcome and thank you for being on the Learning Futures podcast. Um, I know Roshna and I were like last night, for example, we were just sort of, you know, kind of preparing and going through and looking at a bunch of stuff. And like every time we were looking at new things to talk about with you, we just kept getting more and more excited. And we're like, you have done so much. It's incredible. Um, and, I, you know, as a way of introduction, I think, you know, obviously we have your, your bio, which is in, by itself just immensely impressive, right? But um, one of the things I've, I've started to really like to ask our guests is because our audience is so general, we have people who are early career, early faculty, graduate school, um, and then we, we invite and we have these amazing, you know, experts on and often it, I'm left wondering, like, how did you end up where you are? Like, what is, you know, what is, what is Ken's origin story, if you will? Um, and maybe just kind of, yeah, just tell us a little bit about from your perspective, how you sort of ended up in where you are today and doing all this amazing work, developing cognitive models and doing all this really fun, amazing stuff with the learn lab and all this kind of stuff. We're just, I'm, we're very very just dying to hear what your what your story yeah, is. Yeah. Well, I, I'm a first generation student. Uh, um, my parents didn't have college degrees, and I went. My my dad said all throughout my life, uh, "You're going to college. I'm paying for it." So I, you know, I had that kind of support. And uh, my parents are very smart people. They just didn't have those opportunities. Working class Wisconsin, Milwaukee area. Um, I went to the University of Wisconsin partly because that would seem that that was the best, cheapest combo around. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess a theme in my work is I've never really been sort of disciplinarily loyal, if you will. Like, and part of that was <laughs> as an undergrad, I had no idea what I wanted to major in, not because I wasn't interested in anything. It was because I was kind of interested in everything. But I, I was good at math. So I was taking a lot of math courses, the calculus series and so forth. But I was also had a lot of interests in humanities, and a lot of debates about politics and making the world better you know if you know madison it's got this history oh, it's of amazing of city that sort of yeah. thing and 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 actually wisconsin more generally has that too and you know sort of batted back and forth between uh the politics of my dad as a as a a, a capitalist professional kind of thing and and the madison thing but anyway i ended up getting a degree in computer science and math with a, a specialization in AI uh, uh, with air quotes that you can't see. Um, <laughs> because I say that because it allowed me to take philosophy and psych courses, which I really loved. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I started to think about grad school. Um, there's a little interesting side story about going to Stanford and knocking on a faculty member's door and kind of getting discouraged from that, that I could tell. But anyway, as a consequence of that, I just applied to the PhD program in computer science at, at Madison. But start, uh, I wanted to teach. I taught programming. It was Fortran and Pascal back then. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And then I got a call in November uh, from the science education folks. We want you to be our learning, uh, I'm sorry, our knowledge engineer on a project. I was like, me, first year grad student? <laughs> they were building a, a genetics intelligent tutoring system. And, uh, yeah, and I got on board with that, and that was my first uh, experience uh, building a genetics, building an intelligent tutoring system for genetics, and also my first experience in in interviewing an expert. Mm. You know, and I was trying to write this system that could reason like her, and I'd ask her questions, and she'd go, "Oh, yeah, I know how to do that. I make that decision all the time, but I've never thought about why." Right, this <laughs> kind of 
tacit expertise. I had this really deep experience with that. At the same time, uh, one of these uh, education faculty said, you might be interested in this course Rich Lair's teaching uh, uh, in, in ed psych. Uh, it was a cognition and instruction seminar. And that really turned me on to all the great work going on in cognitive and educational psychology. And I was like, wow, you know, if, if I want to understand intelligence, I'm not, I can't just sit in my armchair and, you know, write programs. <laughs> uh, studying nice. people makes sense. And, and wow, there's a lot of great work going on, especially in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon and the University of Pittsburgh at yeah. that time. So I, I made a list of all the people's researchers who I liked. Um, and again, you know, ignore discipline, right? I applied for the people I wanted to work with. It was psychology at CMU. It was com computer science at Rutgers. It was the cognitive science program at San Diego. Um, it was education at Berkeley. Um, and uh, yeah, and then I ended up getting a psychology PhD at CMU, continued to do computer science, AI work, kind of in the Newell Simon tradition, if that is recognizable. Um, think aloud research, you know, more exploring. This was expertise in geometry and writing AI programs that could do that. Um, and starting to learn psychology. And actually, I was a big skeptic of experimental psychology when I first <laughs> arrived. And it took me a long time to appreciate that. Here's a lesson for students that I, I had. <laughs> I was required to take the social psychology core course. And I felt, you know, well, that's irrelevant. Sure. What are you going to do with that, right? Yeah, <laughs> Computer exactly. science major, come on. Well, this was as a PhD student. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah. Cognitive psychology, right? But yeah, now I love social psychology and we're using it all the time in our projects because motivation is so important for learning. And, and you know, so if you wonder why you're being made to take courses, just trust. <laughs> <laughs> trust the process, right? Oh, I hear I hear that all the time and I am taking courses. I literally hear that at the university. I mean, it's good to ask those questions. How is this relevant? But it's also, you know, good to yeah, take seriously the possibility that this might be valuable later. That's yeah. a really good point. So, yeah, uh, that's my story through grad school. And then I uh, started working with the Pittsburgh Public Schools and was considering, you know, considered going elsewhere for a faculty job. But then there was this opportunity to stay in Pittsburgh and help found our, our Human Computer Interaction Institute. And, you know, we just we were just building out the original cognitive tutors in schools. And um, I even had this teaching stint at Langley High School and a city school in Pittsburgh where I taught geometry for about three months. Kind of like that wire episode where the cop goes <laughs> and teaches schools. I thought I was going to save things, but it was a lot harder than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Tur turns out it's not that easy, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Hardest, I think I would say. Hardest I worked in in my life, you know, in the sense of emotionally draining is a phrase I heard later about that. But anyway, yeah, you know, over the early 90s, we really built out those cognitive tutor math courses and then 98, 1998 spun off uh, Carnegie Learning. At that point, we had those tutors in 150 schools. So we had actually been doing uh, some cost recovery scaling at CMU even before the spinoff occurred. And then that, you know, that led to a lot of data infrastructure and, and the Learn Lab Center that I ran for 10 years and so forth. So, yeah. 
Yeah. That, that's not so short history. <laughs> well, it's exciting. I mean, I, I thank you for sharing that because I think it's in, in, incredibly valuable for people to listen to. Cause I mean, that's a, you know, I, I've had a, in some ways a similar experience where, you know, my undergraduate background was in telecommunication, information studies and media, and then ended up with a PhD in educational psychology and educational technology. And, and again, it was that exact thing, right? Is like, how do I augment my technical skills by learning how people think, work and learn and really trying to try to bring those things together. And, and yeah, I mean, I look back at my own, you know, path and it's a one that only makes sense in hindsight, you know, it's not a, it's not something you see on the horizon. And so, um, for anyone who is in our audience, who's listening, who's sitting there going, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Like you're in good company. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still not sure. (laughs) Still asking that question. Yeah. What are you good at and what do you like doing? And sometimes you got to compromise a little bit on that because sometimes, you know, like I like playing the guitar, but I'm not good enough at it to have that be a career. Right. Unfortunately. <laughs> well, maybe Ken, we'll just have to have you back and then you can, we can dedicate us. Uh, we weren't prepared for that, but we can, we can set aside time at a future interview for you to, 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 to give us some, some musical uh, interludes for, oh, it's sitting right there. It's just off camera. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. So I, I, okay. So Rosh and I jotted down some, uh, I, I, I don't even know why I use those terms. We jotted down, we typed in a Google, a shared Google doc, um, <laughs> things that some, so large bucket areas of things that we want to talk to you about. And I think, you know, I really, we really want to hear all about how, like how, like what, how, and what's going on with learn lab. But before we get to that, I'd like to just back up all the way and ask you if you can kind of help us understand and work through what are these things that we're talking about when we say cognitive models? Um, and what does that mean when we think about, so like a cognitive model, okay, that makes somewhat sense. But then we start getting into that idea of those cognitive tutors. And especially when we're thinking about that in a, in a like a digital frame, I, yeah, I don't know. I think, could you help us kind of unpack, like, what does that actually what does that actually mean? And also, like, uh, if you can also draw attention to just the terminology, like when we say cognitive model, is it the same as an intelligent tutor? And maybe just that whole whole bucket of things. Yeah. Well, cognitive model is like the core source, but it's not the same. It's it's a core piece of an intelligent tutor, just to get that one. Um, you know, one background piece is that uh, you know, psychology is kind of a strange science because we're human beings, right? And it's the science of us, you know, and I think there's a perspective one can take as an individual, like, why do you need a science of us? If you, you know, if I want to know about me, I just self-reflect, right? If you want to know about me, you just ask me. If I want to know about you, I just ask you. But, you know, the history of psychology, maybe most well-known with Freud, but every kind of psychology has pointed to how much is going on inside the brain that we're not aware of. And, uh, and I guess my, a lot of my career and, 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 and part of the reason I've increasingly gotten into more and more psychology is, you know, every time I felt like I knew what was going on, you know, with like how to solve genetics problems. And then I'm trying to write a program that does it. And I realize I don't know. And I asked the next expert in my, in my off, you know, my office mate, how she does it. And she doesn't know, like I was trying to understand, you know, what's the underlying thinking process in doing algebra story problems, you know, applying algebra to real world settings. So I wanted to see how much harder are they than the matched equations. So I made this uh, set of quiz items where I had exactly the same numbers in, in a story problem versus an equation. 
And I also made this intermediate word problem, no story, just in English, starting with some number. If I multiply it by six and add 66, I get 81.9. What number did I start with? Um, and the results came in and it was totally reverse of what I expected because the story and word problems weren't harder. They were actually easier. There was a higher percent correct rate on the story and word problems than on the equations. Hmm. So I could tell you a long list of such stories where uh, um, I, I guess I coined this phrase at one point, expert blind spot, indicating that experts aren't fully aware of what they know. I've since uh, been turned on by work of Richard Clark. I don't know if you've come across him, but Ed, Ed psychologist who does a lot of cognitive task analysis. Hmm, okay. he, he's articulated that experts are only aware of about 30% of what they know. So 70% is outside their conscious awareness. Hmm. That big wow. blind spot. That's yeah. huge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. I just sit there and think about that for a second. That's a big number. Yeah. And so part of what a cognitive model is, is try to tap into what is the thinking process actually, right? And it almost always go, you know, go back to that genetics tutor. I haven't thought about that in a long time, but that was always, almost always about not what do you do? It's about when do you do this versus that? Why did you pick those particular fruit flies or or peas to cross at this moment, you know, that that were both yellow or one was yellow and green, whatever, right? Versus the other, right? Um, or in Richard Clark's work, he did cognitive task analysis of catheter uh, sur uh, surgery experts. And one of the big issues there is they put the needle in different places in different situations. But what are the cues and conditions that determine that? So that's a lot where the tacit knowledge comes in. We can describe, you know, how we do things in terms of the steps, but saying why we're pursuing this step versus that one, that's where a lot of it is in the neural network, right? Mm, and the yeah. neural not directly accessible. So when we build a cognitive model, we're trying to tap into that and we're trying to use data to, you know, break in, you know, that that thing I described with algebra was an example of, I used to do a lot of think alouds, like in geometry, my surprising discovery was like, people aren't going step by theorem by theorem in, in planning proofs. They skip steps. Jumping all over the place and then. Yeah, going backward and forward, but making leaps of infer inferences that are like three theorems all at mm. once. And so then my goal was, well, what is that package that allows them to make that big leap of inference? Oh, and breaking uh, that that thought process down into pieces that can be understood by a model. And so those, you know, what are the chunks that make up a dynamic thought process? That's a cognitive model. Well, I'm going to segue because you did ask, um, you did mention algebra and that got me thinking, um, Sean and I were talking about this yesterday. It got me thinking about um, Sal Khan and Khan Academy and his recent release of a beta of um, a cognitive, I don't know if you'd call it a cognitive tutor or intelligent tutor or adapted learning, but Conmigo, the AI-based, um, GPT-4-based um, tutor or assistant that's built into Khan Academy. Um, have you heard of Conmigo? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would assume so, um, but just checking. So are, is this, in your opinion, I don't know if you've, I haven't had a chance to play with it too long. I did a couple of um, a couple of tasks with it, and you know they might be the same questions that I would ask on ChatGPT. I think it would be different if I were a kid going through an actual math problem and I had to go step by step, and I was trying to bypass things. Um, but I was curious what your thoughts on that were. Um, it's not a cognitive tutor. There's no ah. explicit 
objective model. That's There's no effort to characterize what are these chunks of knowledge or components of knowledge. And, and I, when I say knowledge, by the way, I mean it in the broadest kind of knowledge based sense, mm-hmm. not in the, you know, I think we use knowledge sometimes to mean the stuff we read. That's verbal knowledge. But like I said, you know, verbal knowledge is like only about 30% of the knowledge base. 70% of it is more this kind of pattern recognition, cues and conditions that help me decide, you know, how to gesture, for example, as I'm gesturing to you guys and nobody can see. <laughs> well, can can we appreciate it? Because I, I talk with my hands all the time, <laughs> which is perfect for a podcast. Oh, that makes sense. When you're generating speech, you're not planning it out. You're just doing it, right? But you're making all kinds of micro decisions that are contextually bound, right? And those context factors, as Herb Simon used to say, it's not that we think in if-then patterns, and it's the then the then part's not the hard part to figure out. It's the if part, right? And that's to try to characterize. Another way to say it is, what are the set of tasks that when you learn something, you get better at? You don't get better at everything, right? When you've learned something from an experience, you know, like a learn by doing experience where you, you know, maybe you made an error and then you got some feedback and then you got it right. And then you got another chance to do it in another context and maybe you stumbled again, but you got feedback, but then you start getting it right. At some point you can say, well, you know, I'm now able to do fraction addition, at least when numerators are one's a multiple of the other, like one third plus one sixth. Maybe not when it's one fourth plus one third. That's a little harder. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So that's that sort of gets at a that I meant I meant that as a kind of nuanced conditional thing, right? There's a scope of problems that you can do, and maybe a broader scope of problems that you can't quite do. And that's because, you know, the brain's neural network is picking up on those patterns, but it doesn't do it completely and accurately all at once. It takes iteration and feedback and so forth. When we build cognitive tutors, we're trying to characterize all that stuff, not because we want to tell students it. That's that's not a very that just doesn't work. Learning doesn't work very well, partly because words suck. Like, you know, <laughs> language is full of ambiguity. Yeah, right. But because we're evolved to learn by doing, you know, how did you learn your first language? Observation. Sure. Yeah. It couldn't have been through language because you didn't have one mm-hmm. to learn it. You learn it through experience and, mm-hmm. you know, back from the world, feedback from your parents, examples. And, you know, and that's saying we tend to think once we get in school, it's all verbal learning. And that's what we're consciously aware of. But that's only 30 yeah. percent of what's going on. Yeah. Right? Oh, that brings up a whole slew of other questions. Oh, my God. I'm going, wait a minute. <laughs> so you're telling me maybe I don't have to go to school. I shouldn't tell my kids to school. <laughs> Now, just let me go back to coming. Uh, whatever little bits of the 70 percent. Uh, the large language model has picked up on from the text on the internet that maybe is implicitly in its instruction. But there's no explicitness there. There's no way to say, well, this student's doing well on this subset of problems, but struggling on those, they're missing a knowledge component. We can assign the right task, give some verbal cues, right? Verbal instruction does help, but especially in the context of doing, right? Um, because it makes it example based and it makes it more, you know, concrete, uh, the doing part. Yeah. 
Can what is like currently in its you know most contemporary state? What is the what is the way people typically interact and engage with one of those cognitive tutors? Is it through just like online uh, learning systems or like how how does like the end user actually engage with those tools right now? Like what's the most um, sort of prevalent way that happens? Learning by doing, you know, and we try in the design of these systems um, at all levels to get a good mix of activities that are more kind of, you know, mimicking real world, like work-based scenario kind of things. Like this is an actual task you're going to do in the future. How would you do it? As well as some more focused fundamental skill development, right? And and often there's a nice back and forth between the two, you know, like solving a, a real world scenario about which cell phone plan to pick because one has a higher fixed monthly cost, but a lower uh, uh, per minute rate than the other. So, you know, draw graphs, make a table. Yeah, see where they cross. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then decide, well, if I'm using it over 130 minutes a, um, a month, then, then plan B is better than plan A, right? That that's kind of a, that's a cognitive tutor activity basically. And, and there are multiple representations. There's a graphing tool, there's a table tool, there's equation solving tool. And every step the student's making is getting monitored by those if then rules in the cognitive model to see, you know, is the student demonstrating, you know, in, in what cases are they demonstrating that they know some of these skill slash knowledge components? In what cases are they demonstrating, you know, that they need more help, more practice, more feedback, more instruction? And then the system's adapting. You know, and then some of them, like I said, are more focused. Okay, you know, maybe you need more practice on uh, translating a story to an equation. So we'll just do that for a while, uh, you know, and then come back to the big picture uh, problem. Does that help? Is that what you mean? Yeah, well, yeah. And so like, again, no one's going to hold you to your answer here. So you're free to speculate, um, which is where we can have some fun. But like as a futurist, right? So one of the things that has long been sort of a goal, right, or this like idealized state that we'll reach to at some point here with using, like, again, the, the evolution of those cognitive models and tutoring systems is to come up with this sort of hypothetical perfect. We'll use we'll use words like that so we can really make this, uh, <laughs> we can really release ourselves from being accurate here. But a like a, a pers- perfect, if you will, uh, personalized intelligent tutoring system that sort of is like baked into the, our normal sort of sphere of operation. So like a digital assistant that is using these things. So it knows, so for myself, for example, a cognitive model that would know what Sean knows and doesn't, what are, how do I learn best? Where do I learn best? What is my current can, you know, psychological condition, whether that's conducive to what type of learning and then give me in just in time, real time learning instructions to help me be the best that I can be. Right. Since you're, I mean, you literally are working on this stuff, have a front row to the newest, you know, advancements and developments in this space. What do you see as the like most contemporary challenges working towards that state, which, you know, it could be an asymptote, right? We'll work towards it, but never actually get there perhaps. But in that effort to try to create those systems or move those systems out of maybe a traditional you know, online or specific learning environment and moving that into, you know, our personal technology environment, what do you see as some of like the major hurdles or maybe 
major opportunities or things that are really exciting about the way some, you know, new or emergent technologies and, and things like that are, are, are headed? Yeah, well, you know, um, kind of going back to the, uh, I, I used to say I'm multidisciplinary, but I'm almost anti-disciplinary. Like, <laughs> I, like, I like that term, anti-disciplinary. The problem's more important. And when I the problem, really, I, I usually think about two problems at the same time. There's some scientific problem and there's some practical problem. Like in our PLUS project right now, the practical problem is, can we double middle school math learning? And then the scientific problem is like around, well, what are the barriers to that currently and how can we overcome the barriers? And one of them that we identified and others have written about um, opportunity gaps, like achievement gaps come from opportunity gaps. You know, in this paper we published at the beginning of this year about uh, uh, nearly constant learning rates is suggested that when students get high quality opportunities, every one of them learns. Mm. Mm, well said. The same course at very different places. That's the other thing that's striking about this data set uh, or this analysis. 27 different data sets, math, science, language learnings, some upper elementary up to early college. Like there's a variety of settings. But there's always high variability in where students are starting but strikingly similar progress per practice opportunity, right? And I think that's so important because sometimes kids get in their heads and even teachers sometimes get it in their heads that, you know, I can't learn math. This can't, This kid can't learn language, whatever. Our data says that's wrong. But it also says that there are, you know, if we then look at who's taking those opportunities or getting those opportunities, um, there's a lot of variability. And, and, you know, that goes to motivation. It goes to social support. But, you know, I was all, all by a way of kind of saying those two big problems need solutions from social psychology, from, you know, research on educational settings. You know, there's contextual factors. There's the AI technology factors. There's a lot of different things going on. I think the hardest part of towards that vision you expressed, Sean, is uh, from a technology perspective is if we're going to really build, you know, theoretically sound cognitive models to drive tutors for, you know, like the metacognitive everyday skills right. you're talking about, we need to be able to bring more people into the authoring of those tutors. It can't just be restricted to those people who can write AI code. Yes, and that's, that's well said. You know, what we did to create the, you know, I was writing production role code and, and our programmers were but we're starting to see a potential to use machine learning so that the way you, a subject matter expert could create a tutor is by tutoring the computer. And then the computer can tutor others. Hmm. And uh, there's, a, there's a 2020 paper in the CHI conference showing a demonstration of how that could work. Still, you know, kind of we're building up in domains, but it demonstrates how people non-programmers could author uh, an intelligent tutoring system for multi-column addition just by essentially giving the computer problems, asking. And what happens in the beginning is this simulated student will say, I don't know what to do. Show me. And the tutor shows a step. And then it starts to try steps and the tutor will say yes or no. Hmm. That's yeah. the form of instruction. Demonstrate. The tutor demonstrates once in a while because because of this. The, in this case, the students, this simulated student, right? <laughs> or says yes or no. And and yeah, so that that's one of those barriers is technological. But there's psychological research, like the 70% issue. Yeah. Task analysis is really hard. A broader problem is people don't necessarily 
understand or appreciate that it's even necessary or, or worthwhile. Um, you know, and then another thing that keeps, you know, slows project progress in education and, and sometimes in health care too, but I think especially education is that, you know, the end goals are so distal, right? They're so far away. Yeah. Even if it's just one year, that's a long time to wait to find out, did it work, right? But But sometimes our goals are like, you know, help kids get to college or have a great career right uh so yeah and then then the social context things i think are 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 also important too yeah for sure so just to kind of shift uh conversation a little bit i would so we kind of mentioned it in passing earlier this uh learn lab um can you tell us a little bit can can you just explain what learn lab is and like what you all like what are you doing with learn lab and kind of explain a little bit about your the the work there for that for that unit and I want to add the quote that I found from your website, which really got me um, interested in knowing, you know, how would I apply this to our schools, which is helping make every school, college and educational company into a learn lab. And I wanted to know if you could expand on that, too. And like, how do I get my I want to learn lab. Yeah, I want to. How do I get a learn lab? <laughs> and what does that mean? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm the kind of the idea there is is consistent. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about learning engineering. Mm-hmm. And the idea there is that we can't expect the learning science to be so specific that, you know, here's the right thing to do, just do it and it'll be guaranteed to work. You know, we've seen enough of that fail, you know, like one example is of the randomized field trials on well-designed research-based stuff, you know, for a hundred randomized field trials, do you know about how many have turned out significant? 10 out of a hundred. Wow. Yeah. Hit rate, you know, we, we need a better, research to product pipeline so that the hit rate is bigger than one out of 10. You know, I think in medicine, randomized field trials are often not successful, but I think they're closer to 50%. And they have a better pipeline of different kinds of studies leading up to a randomized field trial. So, you know, that's part of the challenge. But, you know, the idea, like, it's kind of odd that, you know, at our research universities, especially, you know, what research do we bring to bear on education? There are examples, but for the most part, none, right? <laughs> professors just do it, right? How do they do it? They do it like their professors did it, right? The kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. So can you make that a more scientific process? Like, you know, if you want to teach, you know, and, and it's happening, there's a lot of disciplinary-based education movements like physics education, you know, and a lot of good results on the power of active learning, for example. That's a good example. You know, at Harvard, they've done these active learning studies in other places, but they're actually running studies in their classrooms. And we've done a lot of that now at CMU. And, and there are other places. There's great work in, in University of New Hampshire, for example, that are starting to do this. Um, Carnegie Learning, you know, which is the spinoff of, for the cognitive tutors, is a big research arm and is constantly doing experiments to improve the product. So it's that kind of iterative data-driven improvement process. That's learning engineering. And that's a learn lab is kind of the idea of having the social and technological supports to do that iterative process, you know, ideally in the context of an educational delivery institution. Hmm. Sounds kind of like action research, maybe, or some aspects of action research. Related to action research. And I mean, the idea that there can be resources to support that as part of it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like uh, you know, if, if, it, if 
we had a lot of authoring tools to make it easier to build tutoring systems. So the cognitive tutor authoring tools are, you can go to the CTAT uh, website and and use the cognitive tutor authoring tools. And then there's the open learning initiatives has authoring tools for online courses at the college level that are highly interactive again. And they really are based on having a, a cognitive model, sometimes not implemented in the details I was describing before, but but implemented through a careful backward design process saying, these are our goals. These are the tasks that achieve those goals because they exercise certain concepts and skills that are part of those goals. And they're, you know, and, and very much again, learning by doing oriented. Um, so that, you know, there's authoring tools. And then, you know, one of the things that struck me at some point is, you know, we were trying to, you know, show how technology based learning can be more effective than say, you know, practicing math on paper. But, you know, the other thing that's so valuable about the technology is that it it automatically collects data. And so, you know, when students interact with these tutors and online courses, we get to see, you know, at 10 or 20 second intervals, what they're doing, mm, right. right? Use that as part of this iterative data-driven optimization process. So Data Shop and LearnSphere provide a ways to share your data, but also push button analytic tools to do learning curve analyses and other things. Uh, um, the LearnSphere is a way to share new analytic techniques ac across, you know, universities and industry. Um, so that's another part of the Learn Lab is having this set of resources to facilitate something like action research. It was all, well, we had 10 years of, of funding from the National Science Foundation for a Science of Learning Center. Um, from 2004 was when it started. And, it, and that was that was a big center level investment, close to 5 million a year. So yeah, wow. And, and we had six, what we called Learn Lab courses where we were embedding research in algebra, geometry, physics, chemistry, uh, French, and Chinese. Um, so we language science and math. Um, and that kind of Learn Lab course idea has built up um, you know, and again, it is like, you know, action research or, or research practice partnership kind of ideas, mm -hmm. but with a like fundamental uh, use of technology as a supporting, a way of supporting data collection, data analysis and, and speeding the feedback interaction. Yeah, Roshna, you were you had a I think you had a, you had a comment or something. You're yeah, bubbling I was, over. You're bubbling I'm, I'm, over. I'm, I can well, see. Well, I'm really excited because well, I'm a, as a student myself. You know, I'm listening to what you're saying both as a student and then I'm also a STEM strategist for our K-12 schooling system. So a lot of things are going through my mind. But as a student myself and listening about the Learn Lab, I'm wondering, is this something? I'm, I mean, I've got to dig in a little bit more and check out. Like, can I can I observe? or see some, you know, results from this? Uh, can I see who else has tried to implement it? Would I benefit from it as a doctoral student who is trying to get my research going or done? Or if, I, you know, as a student, maybe it's, I'm, I'm still very narrow and in the learning phase, but when I get out of it and get into like larger research, you know, should I be looking into these kind of tools and things? Because that would be monumental. Um, right now, I feel like it's all over the place for me. Yeah, we've been, you know, Doing various kinds of educational efforts as part of Learn Lab too. So we have a we have a week long summer school every year. Just two weeks ago we had the twenty third annual uh, yeah. summer school. Um, I think the first five were just on intelligent tutoring systems. It started in two thousand and one. So starting in two thousand and four, it became the Learn Lab summer school. Uh, but we have tracks in 
uh, intelligent tutoring uh, development, uh, educational data mining, online course development, computational models of learning is a new uh, sort of along this lines of this, you know, authoring tool, I said. And then this year, for the first time, we had a computer science education research hmm. track. And I think in the we may start to do more discipline oriented things, you know, like we could have a chemistry education research track. But people come for a week and, you know, in this theme of, did I mention earlier, projects and fundamentals kind of thing, you know, like the cell phone problems, more project like. But, you know, that one is given self determined projects are super important too, right? So students come to the summer school with, they pick a track and we we ask them, you know, if you're in the educational data mining track, do you have a data set you want to analyze or a method you want to try out? And we pair students up, you know, maybe one's got a data set, one's got a method and they do a project over the week. But then there are also more fundamental skill oriented uh, lectures and so forth. So um, Learn Lab Summer School happens every year. Another thing is we have competency courses on, on our website. So if you want to take a course on, on backward design or learn by doing principles or, you know, uh, the fundamentals of essentially doing cognitive task analysis, there's about 20 of those uh, on our website, you know, that they're like two weeks in a semester, but probably take an individual self-paced more like a month or two to do. Mm, that's huh. awesome. Exciting. And maybe we'll just drop the Learn Lab links. Oh, yeah, well, here, for so, sure. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm also, with those summer schools, do you have to be a student? <laughs> can anybody Can anybody come? <laughs> Anyone come? It sounds like summer camp. That sounds like an amazing, I'm like, that's like the perfect summer camp. <laughs> get, out of the, <laughs> get out of the Arizona heat. That would be, you know, that sounds like a sweet deal. That sounds fantastic. Okay. All right. So, um, well, thank you for that, Ken. And we'll be sure, I mean, just like with all of these things, we'll be dropping that in, in our show notes so people can can see and they can comb through um, those resources. Now, um, you know, as we're just being con conscious of your time and all that kind of stuff, sort of, I did want to, I did want to ask you um, to get your opinions around this sort of explosion or Cambrian-esque explosion, if you will, of, of generative AI tools um, that are sort of bursting onto the scene. I mean, it was barely a year ago, right? When it was sort of like we had this massive, this massive drop of, you know, OpenAI's ChatGPT, which sort of took, you know, the, the general public by storm, uh, if you will. And, you know, ever since that tool has dropped, I mean, you cannot escape a conversation around anything practically without incorporating some element around, well, what about generative AI? And, and so for, you're right. I can't, you can, oh yeah. I think it was like, so probably by February, I was already just exhausted every week of hearing just the <laughs> existential, the hyperbole, the hype cycle was in full force. Right. Um, but Given that, one of the questions I would have for you, someone who's been working in this space, developing, you know, working on these cognitive models, building these tutors, um, you know, starting to see some of the, um, you know, end user or even commercially available generative AI tools, you know, I, I'm not going to ask you the question of whether you think we're all doomed or if we're, you know, going to be, you know, whatever, you know, of course you can share that if you want, that's fine. But my question would really be is about like, from your perspective, should we be excited, skeptical, critical, all of the above about this new wave of generative AI and how that might start to see or start to merge with 
like the research and the work and the longstanding history of the cognitive models and like what what is your take on that one with given this gigantic wave of in some cases well overblown expectations but nonetheless we are making a lot of really innovative transformative advancements in the way people are interacting with some of these tools um and how do you, how do you see that with within your realm of uh, of work and, and projects uh, you know, well, you remember the MOOCs? They were going to, you know, shut down universities oh, yeah. and everything. We're still here. <laughs> no, are, are, you know, hundreds or millions of students getting education at, uh, uh, that they never got before? Yes. So it was great. It wasn't all it was cracked up to be, but it was great. And I think that's the same here. It's not going to be all it's cracked up to be. Um, uh, you know, I, when you see generative AI do its stuff, it's just amazing that it does anything at all at some level, right? Yeah. Like in the, the, you know, the text that's produced, you know, it reads fluently, you know, and this is one of those kinds of psychological phenomena, uh, like, and it's been established. Like if you read a fluent text, you judge it to be of better quality than a similar content, but not as well written or even better content that's poor, poorly written, right? Um so, you know, we're suckered by that, mm. um, you know, like in programming, like intro programming, uh, codex is about 70 percent correct, which is amazing, you know, amazingly above zero. Yeah, <laughs> right. But it's an app, right? Like if a student gets 70 percent in your course, that's not great, right? <laughs> well, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. because I remember I think it was last year we we had an interview um with Ryan Baker and i think he had, i think it was he who said you know in some ways they're amazing because they can do some things amazingly well but but in other ways we've go, gone nowhere at all with some of these things um and you know i've been fairly outspoken on this podcast but also in some papers too um sort of you know my perspective on it, i i really sort of have gone back to this late 90s um, uh, conference presentation by Neil Postman, right? When talking about these, the, the impacts of these sort of emerging technologies and that they become an ecological change, right? That is like, it is not going to, as you mentioned, right? The MOOCs did not destroy, you know, higher education. Um, the printing press did not destroy our ability to write and think, um, you know, every generation has, these major disruptions, right? And that the, in that there, there is a cadence to them and it's not this like doom and gloom and everything is over, but it becomes an ecological change that, you know, just like as, you know, the prevalence of having the internet in traditional learning environments, right? That was seen as a threat. Um, and now you can't have learning without that in some ways, right? It's so intertwined in the sort of the ecological model um, and that's kind of one of the things that I'm, you know, I'm curious about too. And Roshan, just even for yourself, right, is like when we think about these generative AI tools, is I, that's how I see them as really becoming part of that ecological fabric. You use bits and pieces here and there, but it by itself is not going to be the end all be all. Yeah. And I think Ken gave like a great example, just the MOOCs, um, you can say, and all the ones that you gave, Sean, it just, that's that repetition through history of, of that kind of um, the cycles that we go through. And while this is, of course, I think drastically different in some ways, but it's still that same cycle that we go through and that, yes, it is incorporated now um, into our day to day. 
Um, it's if, if I look as just a layman, like a person who's just trying to live my life on the daily, first of all, assuming I have access to technology and, and these pieces, a phone or whatever it may be, um, I mean, it's been there half the time. I don't know. I mean, I do, but I'm just saying if I were like not paying attention, it's just, you know, it's a little, it's a little button on the side now. And there we go. I'll use a button to it. Like yesterday, I think um, in my PowerPoint presentation, right. Or the slides, it's just a visualize it. And it incorporated all of everything I would ever do in Dolly mid journey or Adobe firefly just on the side. So a lot of these things, I'm not sure um, as a day-to-day person, what does that mean yet? And it just seems like we're in that same cycle um, where it will become an ecological change. Just like you're right with with schooling and learning, it becomes very difficult to continue on with that learning without some form of connectivity to the internet, some form of digital technology to have that knowledge kind of transfer or content come to you. So in the same way, um, maybe in the next, I don't know what, what do you think, like five years? couple of years, two years, one year, I don't know, where it just becomes mainstream in the classroom, in our life or whatever. But again. Yeah. yeah I mean, next year is going to be amazing in that regard. Like I was just in the meeting before this, we were talking about, you know, how, how are we going to change our, we have that master's program in, in learning engineering here called metals. How are, you know, how are we going to change? I have an e-learning design course to teach in the fall. Like, how is that going to be different? You know, can uh, can ChatGPT do the project I assign students? <laughs> you know, one thing that I think is having an immediate feed immediate impact is it it helps us in the design and development process. Like we're we're writing a lot of scenario based activities. Like you know, you're in a instructional design situation and you're considering these two alternatives. Which one should you go with and why? Right, and that's a way of making learning principles, you know, like multimedia principles or delivered practice, concrete or worked examples, right? So they're great activities. And if we can ground those in real materials from real experiments, they're all the more meaningful and valid, right? So uh, one of my learning engineers has been taking uh, a scenario-based, call them predict, observe, explain activities, inquiry activities, showing it to chat GPT and saying, I wrote this predict, observe, explain scenario based activity using this paper. I would like you to write me another one in this structure using this other paper. Nice. You're training it. Yeah. Well, that's one shot. Like he might Mm -hmm. give two examples and that'd be two shot. Um, You know, there's this few shot learning kind of thing. Um, It's amazing what it comes up with. Do we want to give that to students right out of the box? You know, like maybe... I don't think it's even 70% of the time, but maybe 70% of the content doesn't need to be edited, but 30% of it does, right? So we edit it, but, you know, we spend less than half the time to produce those scenarios than we used to. But the quality control is still, you know, on the human side. And I think that's where, you know, when you think about students using ChatGPT, it's a huge opportunity for us to say, well, Okay, just like the calculator took away some lower order skills, like my dad was taught a long division procedure for finding a square root, like some yeah. people have never, had, right? <laughs> That's right. Yep. Uh, because you got a calculator, right? Or I can ask Siri, what's the square root of 358? <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's interesting. It brings up an interesting point. And maybe, so I, I grabbed a quote here or a summary, um, but thinking, thinking about if, as a learner, right? Um, there's often been this, this, you know, 
um, well-documented attempts for learners to game a system, right? Especially like a learning management system or something like that. And, you know, if they, if they have unlimited tries on an online quiz, you know, they'll learn to just game it rather than learn the answer. They'll just click, 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 you know, all that through. And, but often if, if I'm not mistaken that a lot of the research around that, the longitudinal research, students who tend to try to look for those workarounds end up having, you know, lower outcomes, like as, you know, learning outcomes and things like that. Um, is that kind of the way you see also some of the use of like some of those generative AI tool, like gold rush, if people are trying to think of using those as a, um, you know, as a workaround or as a way to game a system instead of learning how, you know, like the example that you just described, right, where a student is intentionally creating and crafting something and then using a generative AI tool to do something similar and then compare and learn and look at those two things against each other. Um, versus, you know, I don't know, I'm not going to read whatever book I was supposed to read. Let me just ask chat GPT to give me a summary for it. Um, you know, how do you, how do you, I mean, I, the gamble for students is if you don't read the essay that chat GPT gave you and you just turn it in, like maybe 70% of the time you'll, it'll work. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a chance at the end of the day. Well, and it also, though, puts more onus on instructors to say, okay, I'm not grading, you know, like I, I used to like correct all these spelling mistakes and, re, you know, writing fluency. Wow. I'm not seeing those mistakes anymore, right? Because ChatGPT is doing it. Well, I should have been paying attention to that anyway, because I'm teaching <laughs> e-learning, writing, right? I should have been like, how creative is this project? How well does it incorporate principles and make good choices? You know, on the creative front, if chat GPT has done it, then it's not creative because right. it's already on. Right. Yep. So, yep. That was, that was exactly one of the things I was actually having a conversation earlier this morning was just talking about, which is something I've come back to many times, right? Is this like, yes, there's the, there's the computer science, traditional artificial intelligence alignment problem, but there's also an alignment problem that we all have, right. With, with what we want people to, to learn and to know and how we assess that, right? What projects, what what exams, what papers we're using. And, you know, from as an educator, one of the things that for me that's exciting about this sort of shift or this new awareness that there are tools that can replicate these, which you could maybe you could argue were poor alignments of assessing someone's knowledge or understanding. But the exciting part of that, you know, maybe people are some people, of course, are going to be worried or concerned about that. But for me, I think the exciting part of that is like, well, now we should be thinking about what do we really want to see and how can we think creatively about better ways of, of having performances of understanding, better ways of, of, of allowing students to express their knowledge and their skills and what they have, as opposed to just relying in some cases, just on, it was there, like you mentioned, right? Why is a professor a having people write a five paragraph essay on something? Cause that's what they did. Um, and you know, and rather than thinking, is this the best way or the most creative or the best way that I can dig deeper into, um, into some of those learning experiences? I think that's what, that's what I'm excited about with this, with this new awakening, if you will, (laughs) around generative AI tools. So. Me too. Yeah. Fantastic. Excellent. Well, Ken, this has been absolutely just a fantastic time. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time to come hang out with Roshna and I today. This has been a tremendous amount of fun. Um, Before we let you go, one of the last things we always 
do with our guests is, is offer an opportunity for you to share any, um, any plugs, you know, anything, any, any work or, uh, centers or things of your own or from your institution or colleagues, whatever. Um, if there's anything you would like to sort of share with our audience and we'll be sure to capture whatever you share, um, and we'll make sure we put the links, uh, in the show notes. So anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, learnlab.org is our website. There's a lot of resources that I mentioned. There are too many, you know, sometimes hard to find. <laughs> oh, I'm uh, really excited about that. Yeah. Uh, um, another thing is uh, we have a n- new project I mentioned earlier towards doubling middle school math performance. And that's really about hybrid human and AI tutoring. And then the human part is especially goes back to the social psych story about helping to motivate kids to understand why help them see that math is relevant to their future, that they can learn, you know, that they should have a growth mindset, that they belong, right? Um, e- even if they, you know, are a little bit behind right now. Um, so tutors.plus is that website. We got re- these scenario-based uh, tutor training stuff that really gets into like, how do you implement growth mindset and tutoring and other things like that? So those those are super cool. The astonishing Regularity and student learning rate is this paper I mentioned earlier that came out in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. I think it's a super important paper, maybe my best ever. <laughs> wow, great. Well, we'll be sure. Yeah, we'll be sure to link that for absolutely for sure. Yep. Lead framework is, is part of what led to that. And that was part of the Learn Lab uh, output. The last thing I'll say is um, um, my great colleague, uh, Nezra Yanir, has created a uh, Another application of AI that's not generative AI, it's it's about using AI vision mm. to a mixed reality science AI tutoring system where kids like kindergartners to first grade are doing science experiments, but they're getting help as they're figuring out the cool. properties of on an earthquake uh, table, for instance, or uh, how a balance scale works is another one, or what makes a... a uh, an object go down a ramp fast. So they're, you know, physics principles. She's working on one for projectiles now. Oh, cool. In in this, on a table, you can actually see the difference that's between cool. a dynamic piece of foam and one that's not. Like the aerodynamic one goes a, across the table for, you know, a foot and a half where the other one only goes a foot, wow. right? And gorilla.org is that website. And it's using AI vision to give kids feedback as they're, it, there's a lot of other. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. It's really cool. It's in it's in museums in in Pittsburgh and Atlanta and some other places, but also in other schools. So you can play with it. Yeah, definitely check that out. So, yeah. Thank you, guys. Yeah, great. Absolutely. Well, Roshna and Ken, thank you again for joining us today on the Learning Futures podcast. We'll be sure to put all the links and conversations stuff on all the notes. We'll have that in our show notes so you can follow along and learn more about uh, Ken and the amazing work of Learn Lab and all the other resources that were shared. Um, and so, yeah. So, again, thanks for joining us on the Learning Futures podcast. That's a wrap. You've been listening to the Learning Futures podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and details. If your podcast player allows for reviews, please leave us a note. We'd love to hear from you. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. The Learning Futures Podcast is a collaborative production by Enterprise Technology and the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. The show's executive producer is Dr. Sean Leahy, produced by Jacob Snyder, with production support provided by Jennifer Ayala and technical production provided by Jacob Snyder. We hope you've enjoyed this episode.